Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What did Jesus mean? When we see the term born again in the scripture or terms that have a similar meaning, how are we to understand these terms? There has been a great deal of misunderstanding connected with the term born again in terms of how it relates to scripture. And you may have a particular conception of what the term means from a scriptural standpoint, but is your understanding correct or is it possibly incomplete? Could it even be wrong in certain respects? Because of the confusion and misinformation that has been disseminated about the idea of born again, I want to discuss it in depth. Jesus said, as we read earlier, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that tells us it's important to have a correct understanding of this subject. So it ought to be worth our time and effort to investigate it, to understand it thoroughly and properly. In a previous sermon on this subject, we discussed metaphors and how they are used in the Bible. In particular, we discussed the metaphor of birth and some of the various ways in which birth is used as a metaphor in the Bible. Today, I want to continue our discussion in this second sermon on the question of the meaning of born again as used in scripture. Although the main points we will discuss today are relatively simple, some of the information in this discussion is somewhat technical. And so I want to uh, uh, tell you beforehand that I plan to make this information available in writing when I can get to it. It may be a while, but we'll see. But anyway, I want to have it in writing so that you can have a further opportunity later on to study it in detail. I know it's, some of it will probably be hard to follow by just listening to a sermon. Within various Church of God groups, and that does not include all of the groups that are associated with the Church of God, the, the true Church of God, but within various of these groups, not all of them, but many of them in recent times, it's been assumed that birth is used as a metaphor of the resurrection to eternal life. It's also been claimed that the same Greek word, ganao, when used in connection with conversion, does not refer to birth or being born, but that it is analogous only to human biological conception. The idea is that at conversion, one is not born again, so to speak, but only, you might say, conceived again, and that hence the converted are not children as we might commonly use the term, that is, children who are born, but by analogy, they are children in the development stages before birth like a fetus in its mother's womb, for example. However, as we will see in this sermon, the analogy of a born child to a converted Christian is very common in the New Testament. 
A variety of denominations that profess to be Christian view conversion as a born-again experience. And yet very few, apart from some Church of God fellowships, picture the resurrection itself as a new birth, whereby we are given the very nature of God as His Spirit-born children. As we progress in this, this, this discussion, we will see that a careful reading of the Scriptures demonstrates that the term born again is appropriate as a metaphor both for conversion and also for the resurrection to eternal life. As mentioned earlier, the analogy of a born child to a converted Christian is very common in the New Testament. It is in most cases a much more appropriate analogy to the circumstances of the converted than would be that of an unborn child. Christians are often referred to as children in the New Testament. And where the analogy is used in many cases, the context also shows, uh, shows clearly that it can be referring only to an already born and developing child not to an as yet unborn fetus. One clear example of the biblical analogy of having become converted with having become a child, not merely an unborn fetus, is found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. Now, we're not going to read the, all of these verses, but if you read it, you'll find that Jesus had called a little child into the midst of the disciples who were with him at the time. And then Jesus said in verse 3, he said, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, he had there before the disciples a child, a little child. And he said to them, unless you become, or unless you are converted and become as little children, and the example being the child that was there at the time, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, both the context and the Greek words used in this passage of Scripture show conclusively that Jesus could not have been referring to an unborn child, but to an infant or perhaps a child slightly older. The Greek word used in these verses for child and children are pideon, which usually means a very young child, most commonly an infant. One can become an infant only by being born. The implication is that a spiritual change, conversion, as it's referred to, must occur likened to a new birth by which one becomes, as it were, an infant child spiritually. Another example is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, and I think I'll read this entire passage so you can get the context clearly. 
In Galatians 4, <clears throat> beginning with verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar was Abraham's bondservant, as it bondwoman, as it uh, states here, and and the handmaid of his wife Sarah. But <clears throat> it says uh, the uh, one from Mount Sinai, the covenant which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar in this analogy. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and co corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Now at that time, Jerusalem was under the dominion of the Roman Empire. So it was in bondage with her children. The Jews, or in a broader sense, the Israelites. In verse 26, he says, But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So in this analogy, the Israelites under the Old Covenant are merely born according to the flesh like Ishmael, the son of Abraham's bondwoman, Hagar. By contrast, in this analogy, Christians are like Isaac, children of promise and born according to the Spirit. Christians are children of promise and born according to the Spirit. Take note the clear implication of Scripture here is that Christians are now born according to the Spirit. That's how they're described. In this verse, both phrases, according to the flesh and according to the Spirit, modify the arrowist passage, part, uh, passive participle of Gnao. And it refers to both Ishmael and Isaac as having been born, not one born and the other only begotten or conceived. According to this scripture, Isaac had been born according to the spirit, while yet flesh and blood, and not having yet received the promised inheritance of God's kingdom. Referring to the New Testament era of fleshly descendants of Abraham and those born according to the spirit, 
It says the one was at that very time persecuting the other. At that time, the Jews were actively persecuting Christians. And so the one born according to the flesh in this analogy was persecuting those born according to the spirit. Now, unborn fetuses of different mothers cannot persecute one another. Children who are born can persecute one another. In the same context, Jerusalem above is spoken of as the mother of Christians and we her children. And it says, now we brethren, now we brethren as Isaac was are children of promise. Now the Greek word translated children is the plural of technon, the Greek word technon, which means a child, specifically that which is brought forth or born, which is derived from the root word tikto, which means to produce, to be born, to bear, or to bring forth. And the common use of this word is of a child who has been born. So it says that we, Christians, speaking, what you're speaking of, are children of promise. It doesn't say uh, embryos or fetuses, yet unborn fetuses. It says children of promise. In 1 John 3 and verse 2, 1 John 3 and verse 2, it says, Now we, speaking of those who are converted, now we are children of God. It says, now we are children of God. Meaning that we are in this present age, in this lifetime, children of God. And again, the Greek word here used in 1 John 3 and verse 2 is technon, which means a child who has been born. That is the common meaning of the word. Now we are children of God. In likening Christians to children, numerous places in the New Testament, the authors employed several different Greek words. The Greek word for an unborn child is brephos. You want to spell it in uh, the English transliterations, B-R-E-P-H-O-S. That is the common Greek word for an unborn child, but it can also mean a newborn or an infant. And while several times used of literal unborn children or infants, the word brephos is used only once in the New Testament as analogous to Christians. And in that particular place, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, the meaning of this particular word is clearly that of a newborn child, since fetuses cannot drink milk.
these have born again as a metaphor of conversion is especially clear in this passage of 1 Peter. He says, of the brethren in, uh, well, I may as well turn over there too. 1 Peter 1. First Peter one and verse twenty-three. He says, and he speak, he's writing here to the church, and he says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. So he speaks of Christians as having been born again. And then in verse two of chapter two, he says as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The word translated newborn in chapter 2 and verse 2 here is from a compound Greek word Arteganatos, which is commonly understood to mean newborn, as it is translated here, as newborn. And that is the common meaning of the Greek word, Arteganatos. And the word translated babes here is brephos, which, as I said earlier, can refer to an as yet unborn fetus or it can refer to an infant child. And here the word be, would be understood as referring to, the, to an infant child because it says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. Now, a fetus as yet unborn does not desire milk. In fact, it would be impossible for it to drink milk. But after a child is born, then it begins to desire milk. So this is plainly speaking of, an, of, of a newborn baby as analogous to, to Christians. And I might also add that an unborn fetus has little in the way of conscious knowledge. It is not taught. It can do neither good nor evil. And it cannot walk. Christians, as the spiritual children of God, do all of these, as you can verify by re referring to various scriptures, which I won't go into right now, but there are various scriptures which show that uh, Christians are to have knowledge. They're to be taught they can do good or evil, and they're told to walk in, in, certain, in a certain path, you might say. If ganao in its various forms is intended to refer to a fetal condition spiritually, we might ask why isn't brephos in the sense of an unborn child used to refer to the children of God living in this age? 
but you do not find anywhere in the New Testament where is, that is the case. This is the only scripture that I'm aware of where Rephos is used in reference to Christians, and it clearly means a newborn child. The common word used in referring to Christians in this age as children of God is the plural of technon, which, according to Vine's expository dictionary, quote, gives prominence to the fact of birth. Vine's dictionary says in defining this word technon that it gives prominence to the fact of birth. So when children are uh, referred to, or, or Christians are referred to as children in this age, they are most, if not always, uh, uh, they're, they're commonly and virtually always referred to as children who are in fact born. So, Again, let's go back to the word ginao, which is often translated begotten in the King James Version. And when this word ginao is used as a metaphor of conversion in the New Testament, is it to be taken to mean conceived or born? Is the analogy that of a newly conceived embryo on the one, uh, on the one hand or that of a newly born child? And that's basically the question or the argument that uh, is before us. Now, it may be of interest that early in his ministry, Herbert W. Armstrong had a different understanding of born again from the one he adopted later. In the publication, The Messenger of Truth, of which Herbert W. Armstrong is listed as associate editor in the September issue published in 1931. It is stated under the title Fundamentals of Belief, quote, we believe those who have surrendered the old natural self and received the Holy Spirit are born again, given a new nature and are creatures in, are new creatures in Christ Jesus, that so long as they continue in a surrendered, yielded, humble spirit of obedience to God and in the faith of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to abide within them. That the presence of God's Holy Spirit within is the presence conditionally during this life of immortal life, end quote. Now, as many of you are probably aware, in later years, Mr. Armstrong taught that in John chapter 3, Gnao has the meaning of birth, but he taught that the same word in many other cases carries the meaning of conceived only, but not yet born, in reference to how it applies to Christians spiritually. Now, ginao is in fact sometimes used of having caused biological conception. For example, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, it speaks of a child having been conceived in the womb of Mary, where that word is used. So the word ginao may be used in that sense, 
But the usual meaning, that, as Mr. Armstrong himself recognized, includes the entire process of procreation from impregnation through birth. In the interest of handling the scriptures faithfully, then, we ought to be willing to re-examine the assertion that the word in a large number of cases conveys something other than its usual meaning. When we understand that the New Testament often uses the analogy of Christians to that of children already, already born, but only rarely as fetuses awaiting birth, we need to look at John 3 in that light to better understand its meaning. In John 3 and verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, quote, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, or it could be translated born from above, either translation is correct because the word has uh, two or three somewhat related meanings. The, the most uh, common meaning is would be born again, but it could also be translated from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus clearly understood that in using the term Ganephe Anothen, Jesus meant born again in some sense. Ganephe is Eros passive subjunctive third person singular of Ganao. And Nicodemus asked, how can a man be born when he is old? So he, he understood the idea was being born again. How can a man be born when he is old, he said. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's in John 3 and verse 4. Now, when Jesus said, see, in the sense of experiencing or inheriting God's kingdom, it's a conditional statement. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God or experience it or, or uh, inherit the kingdom of God. But did he mean that one must be born again first and then later see the kingdom, or did he mean that the two are simultaneous? That one is born again and only at that time and, and exactly at that very time, he sees or experiences the kingdom of God. In the sense of being fully uh, initiated into that kingdom, inheriting the kingdom. Now, the position that Mr. Armstrong took in his later years was that being born again and seeing God's kingdom is used in this statement are simultaneous events occurring in conjunction with the resurrection. Now, I'm not in, intending here to disparage Mr. Armstrong. It was through Mr. Armstrong's teachings that God led me into a much more substantial understanding of the Bible by far than I had possessed before. And I have a great deal of respect for Mr. Armstrong and his accomplishments as a man of God. But there is nothing in either the English or Greek syntax in John 3 in these verses we're referring to that demands the interpretation Mr. Armstrong placed 
on them. In his later years, by see the kingdom, Christ was referring to inheriting the kingdom in his fullness after the Messiah's return, as is plain from John 3 and verse 5 and other scriptures. Nicodemus would have readily identified with the concept of inheriting the kingdom upon the appearance of the Messiah. As the Jews, uh, particularly the Pharisees, believed in the, in the coming of the Messiah and the advent of God's kingdom at that time. So in this context, seeing the kingdom as a future possibility contingent on being born again. Now, one may find a clue as to Jesus' meaning in similar expressions. For example, in John 8 and verse 51, John 8, verse 51, Jesus said, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Notice the conditional statement. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And that is speaking of a time in the future when death will be abolished. In John 11 and verse 40, John 11 and verse 40, Jesus said, If you believe, you will see the glory of God. This is from the New American Standard Version translation. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Again, a conditional statement on something you do right now, and then later on there is something that you experience as a result of what you're doing now. Belief now will later lead to seeing the glory of God. Now, better still, Jesus himself explained his meaning in a very similar phrase in Matthew 18 and verse 3, which we read earlier, where he said, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, becoming converted is plainly equated with becoming once again like an infant child. And in this particular verse, Christ does not use the term born but it is certainly implied. How else would one become figuratively an infant except by figuratively being, being born again? Hence, we see plainly the connection between born, being born again and conversion. So in the present context in which we're speaking, being born again and becoming an infant are, I repeat, simply metaphors of conversion. The Pharisees tended to think that being born Jews and devotedly attending to their traditional laws rendered them fit for the kingdom of God. The Jews likened a Gentile becoming a full proselyte to their religion. They likened a Gentile becoming a proselyte to a newborn or one who was born again or born anew. But the second birth in such usage was a consequence of their having, on, having taken on citizenship in the kingdom, not a condition of inheriting it. Now, 
It would have been the furthest most thing from the mind of a Pharisee to see himself in need of being born anew through repentance and receiving of the Holy Spirit as a condition for entering God's kingdom. Hence, Nicodemus' bewilderment when Jesus told him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That would have been a most astonishing statement to make to a Pharisee because he would have no idea that a Pharisee would be required to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Unless, or explaining his meaning to Nicodemus, Jesus said, quote, and this, this is where he's explaining in verse 5 what he means. He said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have understood being born of water as a reference to baptism and of the Spirit as a reference to a literal birth into God's kingdom as a spirit being. While arguing against the idea that the phrase born again can apply to conversion. But that approach is lacking in logic and consistency since both water or of water and of the Spirit both of them refer back to the same verb, born. It's not uh, one meaning conception only and the other being born. It's either one or the other, and in this case, it's born. Paul clearly shows also the connection between Baptism, the outward symbol of conversion and the resurrection. And we discussed this in some detail in the previous sermon, but let's rehearse it again briefly. In Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 2, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death, or if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, notice that again in this passage of Scripture that after baptism, symbolizing the death of the old man, we are to walk in newness of life. And baptism also symbolizes and anticipates the resurrection. One might say a new birth prefiguring an even greater new birth to come. Employing the same symbolism as Jesus, but in slightly different words, Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Titus 3 and verse 5, Quote, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
Now the Greek word translated regeneration here is a genitive form of palagonasia, which means literally a new birth. The word palagonasia or palangonasia means literally a new birth. And so it could be translated through the washing of a new birth. Washing, of course, would, re, would imply baptism and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The New Heart English Bible translates this verse as follows, quote, not by works of righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The New English translation translates the verse as follows, quote, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of his mercy through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word translated saved in this verse is sozo, which is the common word for saved in the Greek, and it is in the arrowist indicative denoting in this case past action at a point in time. The reference here is to the initial salvation of repentance and baptism, not to the final salvation of the resurrection. We have been saved through the washing of a new birth symbolized by baptism and a renewal brought about through the Holy Spirit. Hence, we see the biblical explanation of Christ's words, born of water and the Spirit, as a metaphor of the conversion that comes through repentance, baptism, and receiving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 and verse 6, John 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, what did he mean by this statement? A person born of a fleshly human father and mother is flesh. Although as scripture reveals, there is a spirit in man. But what is the nature of that which is born of the spirit? And this is the question which Jesus is addressing since Nicodemus inquired about his meaning with the rhetorical suggestion of literally entering a second time into the womb. Now John wrote that those who receive Christ become children of God by virtue of having believed in his, in his name. As we read in John 1 and verse 12, John 1 and verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Notice he's speaking of those who become children of God as being born 
not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And Peter wrote of Christians in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, quote, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. The corruptible would be uh, implying the fleshly seed or born of the flesh. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed or of the flesh, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So we see in these scriptures a clear distinction between that which is born of flesh and that which is born of God spiritually. So it is possible for one to be born of flesh, but also at the same time in this metaphorical sense to be born of the Spirit. When Jesus was explaining this to Nicodemus, he was making the same distinction that, that there is a difference be, between that which is born of flesh and that which is born of spirit. True Christians are to live in the Spirit of God and are to walk according to the same Spirit, according to Romans 8 and other scriptures. That which is born of the Spirit is not the outward man of the flesh, which is perishing, but the inward man which is being renewed daily. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he said, quote, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And in Ephesians 3 and verse 16, Paul is expressing his prayer for the brethren, Ephesians 3 and verse 16, where he said, quote, be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, the inner man. Peter spoke in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 of the, quote, hidden person of the heart. To be born of the Spirit is to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 24, it is to put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. Now Nicodemus was thinking in terms of a physical birth. But Jesus Christ was thinking in terms of a metaphor of birth, the creation of a new spiritual entity, the inner man, the new man, created through God's Spirit. And that inner man, that new man created through God's Spirit is not perceived by sight, nor by a pinprick, but by his deeds. In John 3 and verse 8, Jesus uses an illustration. He says, quote, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, end quote. 
Now, if we interpret this analogy in the sense of one who is born of the Spirit being invisible, it could not apply except perhaps under extraordinary circumstances to physical human beings. But even as fully spirit beings born to God of the resurrection, those made righteous will be visible as Jesus was after his resurrection. Now the description could fit one who has been clothed with a spiritual body in the resurrection, but I want you to consider another suggestion concerning Jesus' meaning in the context of, what, of this chapter, and this is a meaning which I think is far more likely. Just as you can sense the invisible force of the wind by its sound, so is the birth from above accomplished. Not by physically entering again into the womb, but by the invisible power of God's Spirit. Now, how is that power sensed? How is it to be uh, perceived? It is sensed or perceived by a difference in the words and actions of those who are so born. Born of the Spirit, you might say. Now, this difference is often perplexing to people who knew a person before conversion, and those people are often puzzled as to how the change came about, lacking insight into where it may lead. Perhaps Jesus had in mind the Scripture in Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 5, 11 and verse 5 of Ecclesiastes, where it says, quote, as you do not know the way of the wind, so you do not know the works of God who makes all things. End quote. The wind works invisibly to affect change or perform, or perform work. And so does God's Spirit work in those who are born of the Spirit. It is not something you can see at work, but you can see the fruits of the results of it. When Jesus came to his own country doing the work of his ministry, we read in Matthew 13, verse 54, Matthew 13, verse 54, quote, they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? In other words, where did this come from? When the Holy Spirit came upon the church on the Pentecost, following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the apostles spoke, their sound was heard. And those who heard them, it says in Acts 2 and verse 12, those who heard them, quote, were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? When Peter and John had healed and preached after having received the Holy Spirit, the Jewish leaders marveled having heard and seen what was being done and asked, quote, in Acts 4, And verse 7, by what power or by what name have you done this? They understood that, were, that there was something unusual, some uh, amazing change in these men that they were, they could not account for. 
Jesus, who as a flesh and blood human being said to the Pharisees as he stood before them in plain sight, said in John 8, verse 14, John 8, verse 14, he said to them, I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. Now, this is exactly what Jesus said is true of everyone who is born of the Spirit in John 3 and verse 8. The characteristics Jesus described as belonging to those born of the Spirit clearly do not apply only to human or, or only to spirit beings or beings, uh, beings with spiritual bodies, but can also apply to flesh and blood human beings who are filled with the Spirit of God. The evidence suggests strongly that Nicodemus became a disciple of Christ before the crucifixion, but it appears that Christ's comments were, were beyond Nicodemus' understanding at the time of the conversation recorded in John 3. Christ made it clear that the point of the discussion, as he said, is an earthly thing, and he went on to say in John 3 and verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how, you will, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I tell you earthly things, and that would imply things pertaining to this lifetime. The need for conversion portrayed as a kind of second birth or a birth from above or as being renewed spiritually was not something a teacher of Israel should have found totally incomprehensible, since it is referred to in various ways in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9, Isaiah 28, verse 9, it says, Whom will he teach knowledge, and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts, So this is a rhetorical question here, which implies that those receptive to being taught of God are like infants in certain respects. Ezekiel wrote of the future conversion of physical Israel at the time they are regathered when the Messiah comes. And he wrote in Ezekiel 11 and verse 19, Ezekiel 11 verse 19, then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So they would have, upon conversion, a new spirit, is what we're being told here. God also spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 18, verse 31, Ezekiel 18, verse 31, he said, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? And these are just some of the scriptures relating to the idea of a spiritual renewal in the Old Testament. But evidently the Jewish leaders had failed to understand how these scriptures applied to them. Now someone may object that it is written in uh, 1 John 3 and verse 9, 1 John 3 and verse 9, 
quote, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. End quote. Now, we know that every human being other than Jesus Christ himself, including the converted, can and does sin. So someone might ask, doesn't this prove that we are not now born of God, since those born of God cannot sin? Well, it might if the translation were correct. However, it is not. As the Greek grammarian A.T. Robertson points out, quote, and this is from Word Pictures in the New Testament by Robertson, quote, referring to this scripture in 1 John 3 and verse 9, this is a wrong translation. For the English naturally means and he cannot commit sin as if it were second arrowist or first arrowist active infinitive. In the Greek language, and that's the end of that quote, but in the Greek language, the tenses generally indicate the type of action as well as in the indicative, the time of action. And the present tense used consistently in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10 of those who practice sinning or those who practice righteousness indicates continuing action. Had John intended to mean that one born of God cannot ever commit sin as opposed to living habitually in sin as a way of life, he would have used the arrowist tense in those verses of John 3, 4 through 10, which indicates action at a point, point in time. Robertson goes on to point out, quote, the present active infinitive hamartanane can only mean heck, he cannot go on sinning, as is true of hamartane in verse 8 and hamartanon in verse 6. Robertson observes a great deal of false, false theology has grown out of a misunderstanding of the tense of hamartanane here. Now, John made it plain in chapter 2 and verse 1 that Christians can and do sin. He said in John 2 and verse 1, My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here John uses the arrowist, not the present active infinitive as he does in the verse we are we're discussing. So the use of the arrowist indicates a, you might, you might say, an isolated sin as opposed to making sin a way of life or habitually uh, sinning without any sense of uh, repentance or trying to change and overcome your sins. The point of 
John 3 verses 4 through 10 is that Christians are not to continue in sin or practice sin as a way of life or live according to the flesh, as Paul puts it. And Paul explains the principle in Romans 6 verses 1 and 2 is saying, Romans 6 verses 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So we are not to continue in sin. We're not to live in sin, willfully and deliberately sinning. So those who are born again through conversion can sin, but they are not to live in sin. Even though the Bible uses the analogy of birth in speaking of conversion, the assertion that Scripture never uses the metaphor of a new birth or spiritual birth in reference to the resurrection of the saints is a gross error. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong observed, the former boils down to little more than an argument over semantics. But a failure to understand the implications of the spiritual birth in reference to the resurrection has blinded millions of nominal Christians to the spectacular revelation of the gospel concerning God's ultimate purpose for humankind. While many professing Christians use the term born again in some sort of relation to conversion, even though they may fail to understand what real conversion entails, few have any comprehension whatsoever of the even more meaningful concept of being born, as it were, into the kingdom of God at the resurrection, sharing fully in the nature of God as his children in a very literal sense. In the next sermon on this subject, we will delve into this additional aspect of the meaning of born again.